This is an emergency transmission from TV Cream. Hello, I'm Graham and this is TV Cream Stays Indoors. In this podcast, I send someone a link to an old TV show and then once they've watched it, I call them up to find out what they made of it. Today, I'm talking to Tim Worthington, who I understand is safely inside somewhere in Liverpool. I am indeed, yes. yeah. Tim, the video I directed you to was the very first episode of the filmation cartoon Space Sentinels. which first aired on BBC One on Tuesday, 10th of October, 1978. Now, before you'd even watched the show, what was your reaction to my choice? Well, I was quite delighted, really, because it's a show that I know that I watched. I remember the kind of process of watching, but I remember very little about, because it's very easily confused with a number of other cartoons around at the time. The main ones mm. being Battle of the Planets and the Fantastic Four cartoon, for reasons I'm sure we'll come back to, but there's heavy stylistic similarities. And I think those two lodged more in my head than the space... Well, I keep calling it the Space Sentinels. I didn't realise it was just Space Sentinels, but I knew it existed, but I didn't even remember anything about it. And it all came flooding back the second I hit play on this. One of the things I wondered if, if like me, when you see the Lou Scheimer, Norm Prescott mandala at the start of a cartoon, that thing that, you know, their producer credit going around, for me, that is a, that is a reassuring sign. That also means, you know, Tars and Lord of the Jungle. For me. How does seeing those two rotating names make you feel? Well, it's interesting that, I mean, when I was young, that was a high watermark of quality. You knew it was going to be higher concept than other cartoons, better quality animation, better quality voices and so on. But watching them again now, all of their shows had exactly the same plot line in every episode, <laughs> which is the same with this, which is some, th- some threat from the past reappears and they have to deal with it, usually in two stages, and then that's it. And across the board, Tarzan, Lord of the Jungle, He-Man and the Master of the Universe, everything Filmation did follows that template, basically. That teaser, that, that teased up my next question rather nicely, actually. So the episode we watched, the first ever episode, it's called Morpheus, the Sinister Sentinel. So I, I sent you up to this challenge. Are you capable of summarising what actually happens in the episode? Yeah, basically, the... Space Sentinels, or apparently the Young Sentinels, were called when this was first broadcast, which I had no idea about until yesterday, basically. But they are troubled by the arrival of Morpheus, who's a previous Sentinel. Ah, another planet. How many centuries have I been at this? Who has the ability, like Australia, to turn into animals, but apparently is more powerful than them for reasons that aren't specified. He comes back wanting to steal access to Sentinel-1, computer that not quite controls them, but sort of guides them on their missions. Perfect! Now I can zero in on what I'm really after. Your Sentinel-1 computer. And he has a very, I say elaborate plot to steal it, but basically it's just, I will get in there and copy all the data and then build another computer. And that's all it is, basically. And he uses his animal-shifting properties quite a lot. No appreciable benefit to his plot it, it just appears to be there for a re- you know there because he can do it and it doesn't appear to advance his aims in any way 
and they ultimately, with the aid of Mo, the maintenance robot, get the better of him. What are you doing? It's all over, Morpheus. You're through. And they send him into, quote, deep space, where apparently he'd escaped to in the first place. So I don't quite know what the logic was there. Morpheus is fading from range now. Couldn't fade far enough away from me. You can say that again, Merc. He couldn't fade far enough. Oh. Later, guys. My suspicion with Filmation is that they probably didn't produce episodes with any kind of transmission order. So I very much doubt that this one was thought to specifically be a series opener. That said, it does seem very weird, doesn't it, to kick off a brand new series, a brand new premise, with a story involving a baddie who arrives steeped in the show's mythology and with a grudge against the protagonist who we've you know, never met before. Did you um, react in the same way? I felt a little on the back foot about that. Well, yes, because I'm surprised it was the first episode, because as you say, it goes deeply into their mythology without explaining anything. I mean, there were vague things in the voiceover about they were ordinary teenagers who were granted powers by Sentinel One who came from, quote, my faraway world. Doesn't really explain anything about their background, anything about Sentinel One's background. I say his, but we don't know. It's really just a computer. And that's it, really. There's no, you know, there's a heavy reliance on the history of these Space Sentinels. And you don't know the history. I mean, I'm sure it seemed very exciting back in 1978. I mean, obviously it was because I know I kept watching it. But to me now, it just seemed very confusing, really. OK, well, I want to talk a little more about Morpheus as we go along. But first thing that we need to do, of course, is actually talk about, as you, as you uh, rightly alluded, they um, when this first went into production, they were known as the Young Sentinels. And then later on, they realised that the show needed a more of a sci-fi name, so it became Space Sentinels. But it does mean that actually throughout the series, they're just referred to as the Young Sentinels. Now, there's the, the trio are... Hercules, I'm not sure about you, but as a child, the one I identified with, the one I wanted to be was Hercules. But actually watching it back now, I mean, he's deathly dull, isn't he? If these were the Tomorrow People, he'd be John. Yeah, for me now, it's more Mercury, who's the kind of... I, I don't know if he was the one I identified with the most at the time, because as I say, I had difficulty remembering it. But he's more like somebody like Jason from Battle of the Planets, like the darker character, although you don't really see any darkness to him. He's the, the wild card, the mysterious one, and seems to be more, in some ways, slightly confident with his abilities and sure of himself. And I think that's more appealing as a kid to, you know, in comparison to a traditionally heroic figure. I don't know, kids tend to like the outsider a bit more, so probably he was who I liked at the time. This is interesting because we, we're coming at this from a psychologically very different point of view. We certainly were back in 1978 because I think I liked Hercules because I grew up um, with, with two older brothers. So I liked Hercules because my feeling is that he is, he's the older sibling in this setup. And I feel, I wouldn't say Mercury is, a, is this kind of um, mysterious outsider as you kind of frame him. To me, he's the younger brother who's always trying to impress him. Hey! <laughs> Don't you ever slow down? He's always showing off. He, he, he's always been quite gauche, isn't he, with, with his abilities. But then, I mean, 
there, there was a, a moment in this that, that kind of, or two moments that, that really struck me again about Hercules, my disappointment for him mounts. There's one bit where he's just a very dull proponent for health foods. I'm fixing supper tonight, a health food supper. And then towards the end, where he's talking about their plan coming together, he has this unique turn of phrase where he says, Is a pig pork? Of course it'll work. So you're saying even back then you you you'd twigged onto Hercules. You, you'd got the gist of who he was, that he is a crushing dullard. Probably. I mean, it does say a lot about my childhood and family position that <laughs> would have identified with the younger brother figure. But yes, I mean, that was the kind of character I tended to go for. And it, again, he was the one I liked the most of the three now. I feel very bad for Australia because, you know, I should really opt for her because... It's difficult to say from this perspective she's a progressive character, but she would have felt like that at the time. Well, th- th- this is an interesting point, isn't it? The filmation specifically went for an ethnically diverse trio. We have a white man, Hercules, an Asian man, Mercury, and an African-American woman who, who is Astria. And actually, they, they cast the voices appropriately as well. They didn't just kind of bus in Casey Kasem and ask him what, you know, what ethnic accents he can do. They actually cast people from those backgrounds. Why do you think they did that? There is a kind of movement at the moment towards celebrating disco sci-fi, which recently became a huge thing on Twitter. Now, this is very much disco sci-fi, but it lo- they look like people who should, should be going to Studio 54 in their costumes, but also in their diversity. And I think it was just the fact that, you know, the disco scene was prevalent and there was so much more diversity than that than ever given credit for. I think it was partly the influence of that because I should say as well there is alarming disco music running throughout this the actual disco music in it is at a frantic pace non-stop and it's not the same music it changes every 15 or 20 seconds and I did look into apparently it's two pseudonyms in the credits for a gentleman called Ray Ellis who previously was best known for working with people like Ella Fitzgerald and he did this to make some extra money. And those two things do not add up in my head at all. I'm sure by then he was a bit too old for disco as well. So I don't know what was going on there. Yeah, I mean, you hear disco and you're right. There are definitely some, kind of some crunching beats there. But mostly I heard prog rock. We've lost them. The kind of extended wig outs. And actually, I think the whole oral landscape of Space Sentinels is actually, it's quite unsettling when I watched it now. Yeah, I found the whole thing cacophonous, really, because as well as the music, there's kind of, in most scenes, there's computery backgrounds going on, there's a lot of whooshing noises. It just seemed like a wall of noise. And that's why I think, although the, the jokes that they trade aren't very good anyway, they fell re- even flatter than you'd think for me, because... There were jokes delivered in a stilted way, in the middle of this just barrage of noise, and I found that the most off-putting thing about it. There was no let-up in that at all, no moments of silence, and that seemed really weird to me, even compared to other filmation cartoons, which have moments that are relatively quiet. So, yeah, that, that was the strangest thing I found about it by far. Excuse the interrupt, but tracking unidentified object Calculated to impact 27.43 kilometres due west. Um, Sentinel-1, his his voice is, is multi-tracked as well. I actually, I found him at times, maybe this is because I'm eking into middle age, I found him occasionally quite hard even to understand, but he's certainly very, again, 
um, he's certainly very disquieting. I, I, uh, he's not really a, a very avuncular kind of paternal figure, is he, in the show? No, and I think that's the reason I got. I always got it so confused with Battle of the Planets is that he's very similar to the bad guys. It's not really a computer in that, but Oh Luminous One, which is just a weird birdie face that appears on the computer screen. And the two really, I mean, when you consider that in that cartoon, that's the bad guy that has that kind of demeanour and voice. It, Like you say, yes, he is very unsettling. And as I say, there's no explanation about Sentinel One's background, so that makes it even more disquieting still. And there is a sense, isn't there? One could um, one could interpret the, the opening monologue given by him is the fact that what he did was he kidnapped these three kids from Earth. It's never made clear that they ever gave their consent to do this. And now they are living forever, stuck in the bottom of this volcano, you know, inside his spaceship, basically being sent out on errands. And maybe the fate of being the new Morpheus awaits them in the future, which will be even more daunting. You know, they, they might fall from favour and be persecuted by their replacements. You nearly get a recharge, you nearly get a recharge. Sometimes this job drives me nuts. And we'll also want to talk about the comic relief robot Mo. Obviously he falls into a huge kind of lineage of comic relief robots. Um, beautifully designed though, um, I think the subtext of him lusting after Astra obviously is uncomfortable watching now but one of the design elements i thought was really clever and i really liked about him was he has no mechanical mouth but actually his eyes have this kind of digital watch led display and his eyes they're kind of pulsed when he talks and i thought that was really quite neat wasn't it as a as a a clever way to get across that he's currently talking yes and i also think it was directly copied by i mean something else that i got this confused with was Herbie the Robot in the Fantastic Four cartoon. Danger! Danger! I sense danger! Herbie the Robot looks very similar to Mo and has a kind of similar... The eyes aren't quite as animated, but I do remember there was a bit of that kind of characteristic about it. I think they just saw Space Sentinels and copied that as a way of filling that gap. But I quite like Mo, actually. Mo was the most likeable character by far for me. And as you say, there is a tradition in Filmation cartoons of Look at things like Orko in He-Man and Masters of the Universe, which was created specifically for the cartoon. Batmite in Batman, Nakima in Tarzan. They just they always like to have that kind of comedy facilitator. Could be relied on to be, you know, to fall about and be silly, but then when they were needed to tie up a plot hole, to leap into action. Um, let's talk then more about Morpheus. For me, he is an incredibly generic baddie. He is no Zoltar. And even though he has the combined powers of the Sentinels, which causes his strength, its speed and its shape changing, he never really feels like the uber threat that he could be. No, and he's got that terrible stereotype evil James Galway look that so many villains had around that time. And that, more that's a passage of time thing, but that does not lend itself to threatening well at all. But yeah, there just seems to be, he's just a bit annoyed that he's being cast out. He doesn't really seem to have a great grand plan in mind. Ah, another planet. How many centuries have I been at this? No matter. It's time to bait another trap. Sooner or later, somewhere in this universe, I'm going to snare the unsettable. Just that he wants the power, and that's that. 
there isn't really much discussion of what he might do with it. And that in itself is hardly a threat. It's like the Austin Powers Doctor Evil thing of where he asks for a million dollars. No, there there isn't really any sense of imminent danger with him. And that makes for quite a dull story, really. The the only mood I got from him, the only take on him I could really get was impotence. I mean, and, and loneliness that there he is alone in his spaceship. And I don't know, it's almost like he, he just wants to connect up with people. Uh, and, you know, potentially maybe he wants to see the old family. He's a deeply sad character. Yes, he is. But he did provide one moment of, well, I can't say light relief, but it certainly was for me, which is the point at which he takes over Sentinel-1. I mean, what brilliant timing. If Sentinel-1's just said, there are six possible explanations. And I was thinking, oh, good Lord, here we go. Five minutes of exposition. But he immediately starts belting out gibberish. Reason one. Two. Buckle my shoe. Because Morpheus has taken over at that point. So maybe he has a sense of humour, but we don't really see it apart from that. And I agree with you. That actually is a lovely moment. And he has one other quality that I like, which is that when he opts to shapeshift, he shapeshifts into all the evil animals because he's an evil man. So he's a snake. He's a lizard. He's a dragon. And even when he becomes a bird of prey, I mean, we see Astria do the same thing. She's a lovely kestrel, but he's just some kind of generic black baddie bird of prey. Do you like that, that he's showing some fidelity to being the villain in his shape-changing choices? Yes. I mean, I wonder, is that a psychological thing? Is that triggered by your state of mind, what animal you become? Or is it a conscious choice? That's not really explored, but it could be either, really, on that evidence. We've talked a little about the soundscape, and... um, one particular triumph for me in the soundscape is Astria's shape-changing noise. I always think Filmation had some really kind of killer sound effects, and I'm sure, and I'm not going to do this research, but I'm sure that noise has been used for lots of other things as well, maybe um, something appearing magically. But, I mean, it's a very satisfying thing, isn't it? And maybe these are, this is one of the things that when you're a kid that is appealing about these shows is it's... It's it's almost a Pavlov's dog thing, isn't it? That you you kind of want to hear those little bits of business, and so I find even you know all these years hence the asterisk shape changing noise for me, it it's still just incredibly satisfying. Yeah, they did go for. I mean, you can't say realistic noises, but sophisticated noises, if that makes sense. Sophisticated, unnatural sounds. I think that was what they were aiming for, and maybe that's one of the reasons that they seemed so different in those days was that they had that veneer of sophistication when some some elements of it didn't warrant that, but the sound effects certainly did. When we were talking earlier about the music, you were mentioning that it's back-to-back, it doesn't ever let up. Now, I think part of that is because a lot of the time the pace becomes very languid. They're doing lots of slow pans over actually quite beautifully rendered landscapes, but these are surely techniques, aren't they, to save on doing any animation? Do you think the show gets away with it, or or do you think it, it, it does profoundly affect the pacing? I think it affects it, because I did notice about those long panning shots. They have very frantic music over it, as though something more exciting should be happening on the screen. I mean, normally I don't mind that kind of scene setting in animations, but there was a real discord there, ironically with no discords on the soundtrack, but which I would have welcomed, really, in comparison to the relentless war war, but it just seemed an odd fit, really, that 
there was it was kind of more chase music or fight music over this really desolate landscape that just didn't seem to make any sense to me at all generally i think the design in the show is pretty strong i mean their spaceship is fantastic um the characters themselves perhaps are the, the most disappointing thing they're a, a little to use the word again generic but otherwise it feels like there's been some kind of some animating uh, r&d has gone into putting this world together yes definitely i mean the one thing it did not remind me of was Star Wars. It was more things like Star Trek the Motion Picture or that board game Starships or because there was a it was quite a different idea in the seventies of what sci-fi was before Star Wars rightly changed everything, you know, with the, the beaten up droids and the battered spaceship and so on. And it was all more gleaming futuristic designs, a lot of white in spaceships and in bases and so on. And it's it's more like a Lego space kind of world than the Star Wars world. That that was really nice to see to have a reminder of that. You know, it's kind of like like elements of Blake Seven. Oh, not every element though, because that got influenced by the Star Wars thing as well. But you know, you had that. There was a different vision of the future. It was more gleaming, more forward thinking, like a like it was anticipating the early days of home computing. That kind of design and that became lost. I think. I think that's an excellent summation. I, I agree with you. One thing I would, I do wonder about, and probably what would have appealed to me. I mean, I grew up as a, you know, as a reading comics, loving comics, um, and I actually think that the um, the Sentinels themselves, then less sci-fi heroes and more superheroes. Do you think? Oh, absolutely. There's nothing especially sci-fi about any of them, apart from arguably Australia's abilities. They are as you say, basically superhero characters. Although I'm hard pushed to think if they were modelled on any particular ones. Maybe a little bit of Thor in Hercules, but the others, I think they were just created as generic superhero types. And then, well, I mean, as we established earlier, it was originally just the young Sentinels rather than space Sentinels. So maybe space was kind of an incidental detail until they thought, hang on, this Star Wars thing is quite popular. Let's reposition this a bit. And I suppose one of the uh, one of the happy byproducts of the fact that they are superheroes is that they do a lot of flying, which is great. And of course, flying is much easier to animate, isn't it, than walking? Yeah, I think, I think it certainly is. <laughs> So, Tim, how did Space Sentinels fit into your day? Did it cheer you up? I really enjoyed watching it. I'm not sure that I'd go out and hunt the complete series box set down, but it was really nice to see it again, and it really kind of refreshingly different what I was expecting. And lastly, how are you finding life in lockdown? It's very, very strange. Not being outdoors is quite a difficult thing to deal with. But on the other hand, I finally got through all of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So whether that's a statement on commitment to watching it or boredom, I don't know. Thank you, Tim, for watching Space Sentinels. Thank you for talking to me about it. Now, stay indoors. Stay indoors.